Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 455 for August 9th, 2015. This week, combining multiple images allows today's photographers to create panoramic views and maybe even to outdo Ansel Adams, or perhaps is that blasphemy? Updating a computer to Windows 10 worked well for me, but occasional failures are being used to drive traffic to those Panic Now websites. We'll take a look at some of those. In short circuits, PayPal splits from eBay, and it's about time. A new website makes it easy to type in non-Roman alphabets, and Republicans plan to update their voter management system. And in spare parts, only on the website. A technology program scheduled for Moscow in October sounds a lot like PC Expo in 1997. Epson has released lots of tiny printers that'll be used in restaurant settings. Subway says you can now order and pay online and wearable cameras are becoming very big business. Adobe has improved both of the photo merge functions that are in the 2015 CC version of Photoshop Lightroom. The merge functions can be used to create panoramic images, either vertical or horizontal, as well as high dynamic range images. These are two features that can significantly expand your photographic vision. And although the built-in features are remarkably good, there are times when you might want to call on some other applications to work with your images in addition to Lightroom. Let's consider both. The first example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is a horizontal panorama taken at the wilds southeast of Zanesville. I started with 12 images. And it's important to be careful when capturing images for a panorama. As you rotate the camera left or right, be sure to allow for a lot of overlap. I usually move about one-third of a frame for each subsequent image so that the stitching software will have a lot to work with. You're not limited to horizontal panoramas, though. When we visited the wilds, we stayed in a yurt. Think of it as a luxury tent with solid framing, a wooden floor, air conditioning, and a bathroom. That called for a vertical panorama. Panoramas that are stitched together from wide-angle lens images are notoriously difficult. I gave Lightroom's Photo Merge nine images to work with and examined each of the merge geometry options. The result, as you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I think is astonishingly good, particularly considering I didn't use a tripod for the image, or the earlier panorama either and I had an ultra-wide-angle lens on the camera for that inside shot. If you choose to hold the camera instead of putting it on a tripod, take care not to move it up or down when you're creating images for a horizontal panorama, and not to move it left or right when you're creating images for a vertical panorama. It's also a good idea to set the camera's exposure to manual so that lighting variations throughout the scene won't affect the camera. Likewise, it's a good idea to turn off autofocus when you're creating a multi-exposure series intended for use in a panorama. 
The other feature is high dynamic range merges. Remember when you needed a light meter to be a photographer? You'll see an old light meter on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I found it in a drawer here at the house. The light meter covers emulsion speeds from 0.3 all the way up to 800, which was blindingly fast at one time. Even if the meter still worked, it wouldn't be much help with ISO numbers that are now reaching into five and sometimes six digits. The light meter could be your friend when you were dealing with a scene that contained both highlights and shadows. Today, it's software that'll be your friend. So this other kind of merge combines multiple photos to provide what's called a high dynamic range photo. It's essential when it comes to dealing with light that ranges from direct sunlight to deep shadows. I was standing on the deck of our yurt and I thought the view was beautiful, but I also knew that the brightness range would be a problem. In a case like this, you have basically three choices. If you don't do an HDR merge, you can keep the shadow detail at the expense of highlights. You can go for mid-tones and lose both the highlights and the shadows. Or you can expose for the highlights and watch as the mid-tones go dark and the shadows lose all detail. If you don't like any of those three options, you can combine them. For HDR images, you really should use a tripod. But if the camera has settings that allow it to take three or five or more images, normal, underexposed, and overexposed, and you're really careful to hold the camera steady, you might succeed without a tripod. And that's what I did at the Wilds. I set the camera to create a series of three images. One at what would be considered normal exposure to get the mid-tones. One that was one and two-thirds stops underexposed, and that would get the highlights. And one that was one and two-thirds stops overexposed, that would get the shadows. Lightroom's Photo Merge HDR did the rest, and with a series such as this, Lightroom is all you need. Sometimes, though, you have to reach a little deeper into the toolbox. Sunset pictures, when the sun is still above the horizon, are challenging because the sun is very bright. After all, it is the sun. Anything in the foreground is going to be dark. So I started with several groups of two or three images created using the same processes for the yurt photos. Because of the extreme contrast, those three exposures gave me a little detail in the grass, a really dramatic sun, and a reasonably good sunset picture in the middle. But I wondered what Lightroom would do with that challenge. It turned out it didn't do so well. The alignment of the sun was off a bit, and overall it's just not a very pleasing result. If I had to choose between the image that came right out of the camera and the one that I created in Lightroom, it'd be the one that came out of the camera. But I had just received the latest beta version of Photomatix Pro's HDR application. The first thing you notice about the Photomatix product is that you have a lot more choices. Maybe good if you like choices, maybe not so good if you like to just have the software do everything. After you've selected the images, Photomatix Pro offers several options. I can think of no reason why a user would ever uncheck the Align Source Images option, but you can do that if you have a special effect in mind. You can also have the program crop the resulting image so it removes any sections where not all of the source images are present. And you can add perspective correction and even specify the amount. There's also a setting that allows you to tell Photomatix Pro whether the camera was on a tripod or not. Selecting the Show Options to Remove Ghosts checkbox is most useful for outdoor images where the wind might move leaves and other foliage from one exposure to the next, or an image in which people are moving around. 
There are also settings for removing noise, reducing chromatic aberrations, modifying white balance, and selecting the working color space. Atmospheric haze created the appearance of a banding across the sun. Check that out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Now, I could have used ghost removal to take care of this, but I decided that I wanted to keep a challenge for later in the process. The next step involved working with the merged image, and that's where the magic occurs. Photomatics Pro shows various starting points in a panel on the right, and after selecting one of those, the next steps involve modifying the settings in a panel on the left. Two overarching process settings and a method selector determine how the application interacts with the images. My final choice left the image with two opportunities for improvement, the band through the sun and some lens flare in the lower part of the image on the grass. Before returning to Lightroom, I used a finishing touch panel and added a little contrast. And an important note here, I tried to accomplish this with just three images. I should have used at least five for a dynamic range this big, and nine would have actually been better. So you'll see more on this subject in a later program. Back in Lightroom, I tried using the spot removal tool, but the lens flare is a very large spot. So then it was off to Photoshop where an adjustment layer allowed me to use the clone tool to paint away the lens flare and then to fill the center of the sun with a consistent color. You'll see the final image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The bottom line for these applications, five cats for Adobe's Lightroom, this $10 a month program is a real winner. You know, if software had groupies, I would probably be a Lightroom groupie. There is simply no better way to organize and improve your photographs, and $100 per year might be less than you'd spend on film and processing every month if you still used a film camera. Lightroom and Photoshop make it possible for anyone to create better pictures, and when you need to go further, there's the ability to use plugins, and that's a plus. Additional details are on the Adobe website. Five Cats also for Photomatics Pro, which is the right choice for the very best in HDR processing. Usually I don't rate beta software, but I have experience with a previous version of Photomatics Pro, and I use the current version for a few days before updating to the beta. It's well worth obtaining version 5.0.5 right now because the upgrade to the new release will be free. If you're someone who likes to work with HDR images, this is an application you'll want. Additional details are on the Photomatics website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And on the Photomatics website, you'll find some useful tips for creating images that you want to use for HDR processing. Windows 10, have you updated yet? And if so, how was your experience? For me, 4 for 4, only one minor installation problem and a temporarily vexing video problem. That pretty well describes my Windows 10 update experience. The minor problem I experienced seems to be relatively common. I'll describe it in case you encounter something similar. And there was a more significant problem with my dual monitor desktop system, but the problem was not caused by the Windows 10 upgrade or by Microsoft. I'll describe that one too, because it has the potential to be a problem for a lot of people, particularly those who have dual monitor computers. First, the overall scorecard. Notebook computer at the office. 
This is a computer that's been running the preview version of Windows 10 for several months. It automatically updated to the production release on the first day the upgrade was available. Zero problems. A notebook computer at home. This was a Windows 8 computer that had been upgraded to Windows 8.1. As soon as I could reserve the Windows 10 update, I did, and it was updated the morning following the general release. The Wi-Fi connection disappeared briefly, but returned immediately following a reboot. I consider that one problems zero. My wife's notebook computer. I had filled out the reservation form for her computer. The computer notified her that the update was ready on the 30th of July, and she decided to let it run overnight. On the morning of the 31st, Windows 10 was ready. She says everything is working as expected. I didn't even have to touch it. Zero problems. And then my primary desktop computer. As with other computers, I filled out the reservation form as soon as I could. Instead of telling me that the update was ready, the update process reported error code 802-400-020. A Google search turned up some suggestions, including the process of locating and deleting several hidden folders. Microsoft's website, however, suggested that this error simply indicates the necessary files aren't yet on the computer. It then explained, and I quote, tech-savvy users with the above message can modify the following registry key to install immediately. It then described the process of adding a single new D-word label and a value to a specific registry key. I did that, and the update started. Problems? Eh, let's consider that one, but quickly solved. But there was that other problem. My primary desktop computer has two monitors. They are run by an NVIDIA GTX 650 video card. When the computer restarted at the conclusion of the final update procedure, only one monitor displayed anything, and the resolution was wrong. It had been detected as a generic monitor, which suggested to me that the video drivers needed to be updated. No big deal, just download them and install them. Windows 10 was downloading and installing other drivers, and I expected that process to find the NVIDIA driver, so I waited for the process to complete. No luck. Okay, so that called for a manual update. I downloaded the new driver file from NVIDIA and ran it. The installer reported incorrectly that I was attempting to replace a newer driver with an older one and canceled the update. When I attempted to uninstall the NVIDIA software, the uninstaller reported the same error and refused to continue. Now this is important. This is a known problem with some video drivers, and there's an easy solution called the Display Driver Uninstaller. DDU is a utility that removes NVIDIA, AMD, and Intel Display and audio drivers from Windows. Then, with only the generic drivers installed, you can easily perform a clean install of new drivers. It's not a new problem. DDU isn't a new solution. This problem has been around for years. So, I downloaded the latest version of DDU and ran it. DDU recommends running in safe mode and offers to reboot the computer. After accepting that recommendation, I watched the computer shut down and restart. DDU started automatically and offered three choices, including one that would remove NVIDIA software and restart the computer normally. And that's the one that seemed the most reasonable, and it's the one DDU recommended. The process took about a minute, and when the computer restarted, I was able to run the installer for the current NVIDIA software. Both monitors activated, and the resolution was correct. Problem solved. The DDU site offers an opportunity to donate, so I did. 
If you encounter this problem, let's say it's uncommon but not very rare, just simply download the Wagner Display Driver Uninstaller from the Wagner website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Beware downloads from other sites, though, and also beware of ad-sponsored links on the Wagner site. The download link you want is not found in the Sponsor section at the top of the page. Instead, scroll down to a text link that says Official Download Here. Some people, though, have encountered slightly larger problems. Remember several weeks ago I mentioned that some people would encounter problems when migrating to Windows 10? Nothing is ever perfect, and operating system updates are always hazardous. There are just so many things that can go wrong. The San Jose Mercury News reports a problem that can render the system unusable. Unfortunately, one of the people who encountered that very problem was Randall Keith, managing editor of the digital section for Bay Area News Group, which happens to publish Silicon Beat, the Mercury News website. Keith had attempted to update his three-year-old Asus ZenBook laptop running Windows 7 and received a warning that his computer now had no operating system. Yikes! According to the online account, the only solutions offered to him were to send the computer off to try to recover the programs and data off the drive, or to do a clean installation of Windows 10. Now, I would hope that he had a backup of the data. The report notes that several of those who experienced the bug reported using Asus computers. Many also reported having laptops that use solid-state drives. I have an Asus tablet, and I've had serious problems with updates in the past. In fact, so far, my Asus tablet hasn't been updated to Windows 10 so I'd be more inclined to place the blame on the Asus bloatware, of which there is a lot, than on Microsoft. According to the Mercury News story, and there's a link to the full story from the TechBiter Worldwide website, 25 people have encountered that problem. So there you have 25 people out of more than 14 million. If it happens to you, yes, it is a very serious problem. But the good news is that it's not likely to happen to you. So otherwise, how are things? With the exception of the video driver problem that I was able to quickly resolve, everything has operated exactly as it should on all of the systems that I've updated. Ironically, though, that Acer Iconia tablet, the only one I have that initially came with Windows 8, the only tablet I have, still hasn't been updated to Windows 10. In the first 24 hours that Windows 10 was available, 14 million computers were updated to the new version. I haven't seen much written about the hardware required to run Windows 10, and actually it's surprisingly modest. Keep in mind, though, that just because something will run on an underpowered system doesn't mean you'll enjoy it. Microsoft says Windows 10 requires a 1 gigahertz processor or faster, at least a gigabyte of RAM for 32-bit systems, 2 gigabytes for 64, 16 gigabytes of hard disk space on 32-bit systems, 20 for 64-bit systems, a DirectX 9 or later video card with a display of at least 800 by 600 pixels. My advice, if you have a computer that just barely meets those specifications, get a new computer. All of the old keystrokes that worked with Windows 7 and 8 still work. You'll find a list of some new ones, though, on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Windows 10 privacy has gotten a little press time lately. I guess it sells magazines or brings people to a website if you use headlines that claim Microsoft is violating your privacy. But it doesn't really serve your readers. Yes, you absolutely should look through the settings in the control panel. 
And yes, checking the security section is a good idea, but if you leave all of the settings as they are, Microsoft isn't exactly violating your privacy. To review the current privacy settings, open the control panel and choose the privacy icon. On the general tab, you will see four settings. Let apps use my advertising ID. This is primarily for Windows phones, and there's probably not a good reason to leave it enabled on desktop or notebook computers. Turn off Smart Screen Filter is the next setting. No small number of experts suggest turning this off. I would leave it on because it analyzes websites for suspicious activity, and it'll display a warning message if the site is questionable. Why would anyone want to turn that off? Next option, send Microsoft info about how I write. Not what I write, how I write. Microsoft wants to improve its grammar and spelling functions. I see absolutely no serious security problem leaving that enabled. And fourth, let websites provide locally relevant content. On the internet, you are going to see ads. That is a given. If you leave this enabled, the ads will more likely be of interest to you. Your choice there. On the Location tab, you can choose whether to share your location. On a desktop computer, this is not an important setting. The desktop system is going to stay right where it is. On a notebook, a tablet, or a phone, it might be important. Note, though, that even if you enable the sharing of location information for the device, you still have to enable location sharing for any app that wants it. So is this a terrifying program? In my estimation, no. And if you have enabled Cortana, she will be able to use your location, and you cannot disable that. And please note I said if you have enabled Cortana. You don't have to. If you don't enable Cortana, this setting will not even exist. And all of the other settings are off by default. So just how serious is this Microsoft will steal your data panic? probably about as serious as the danger that you'll be struck by lightning sometime in the next 24 hours. Windows 10. Five cats. There is no good reason to delay upgrading to Windows 10. Microsoft worked very hard with millions of people who signed up for the Windows Insider program so that this new version of the operating system would have the advantage of user reviews in advance. Even better, many of the people who were involved in the Windows Insider program will continue to participate in an extended version. These people will be instrumental in ensuring that future upgrades to the operating system will be reviewed from a user's perspective and not just from the developer's points of view. You'll find additional details on the Microsoft website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. short circuits, after 13 years, PayPal has split from eBay. This is a good thing for several reasons, not the least of which, in my mind, is the fact that there is no good reason these two companies ever were one. eBay acquired PayPal for $1.5 billion in 2002 and probably created some growth for PayPal, but PayPal seems to have been a company destined to succeed from the beginning. 
Beyond my personal opinion of eBay, which is low, and PayPal, which is pretty high, there are several compelling reasons for the split. For example, Wall Street seems to run just about everything in the country for the benefit of investors, regardless of the impact on others. Carl Icahn pushed very hard to get PayPal, which he describes as a jewel, out from under eBay. Additionally, PayPal's value has grown to an estimated $50 billion or more, and its income is growing about twice as fast as eBay's. Oh, and don't forget Apple Pay. PayPal has fought off other companies that wanted to play in its sandbox, but Apple has the funding and the technology sufficient to make the coming battle a bit more compelling. As a separate company, PayPal will be able to focus more precisely on that threat. The companies were never really a good match, and PayPal co-founder Elon Musk has been quoted as saying that an independent PayPal could be worth more than $100 billion. In part, this is because PayPal will now be free to work with eBay's competitors, Amazon or China's Alibaba, for example. Last year, PayPal processed $235 billion worth of payments for 165 million active customer accounts. It reported a profit of $419 million on revenue of $8 billion. PayPal also processed 1 billion mobile transactions in 2014, and mobile payments will probably see explosive growth in the next few years. The next time you need to accuse someone of stealing your pencil and asking why in Russian, you'll find a website that can take care of that for you. It's not a translation site, though. You do need to know the Russian words, Russian syntax, and Russian spelling to succeed. If you do, this is the site for you. And it's not just Russian, either. It's several other languages that use non-Roman alphabets. And, by the way, if I want to accuse you of stealing my pencil and do it in Russian, it would be this. If you visit Google Translate, that service will suggest Tui is the familiar replacement for the more formal vli. Both of them represent the second-person pronoun you. It's been so long since I studied Russian that I'm not sure whether moi or moyu is the better translation for my in this case. If you know the language and you simply need to be able to type language-specific letters, typeit.org will be helpful. The site has options for typing in Czech, Danish, Dutch, Esperanto, Finnish, French, German, Greek, Hungarian, Icelandic, Italian. Wait a minute, doesn't Italian just use the Roman alphabet? Oh well. Maori, Norwegian, Polish, Portuguese, Romanian, Russian, Spanish, Swedish. Symbols? That's a language? Turkish and Welsh. Even if your computer's keyboard doesn't support the language, you can type in it. Math, currency, and symbols are also supported. So as they say in Russian, URA!
Elections in 2008 and 2012 revealed substantial shortcomings in data processing capabilities for the Republican Party. There are plans to remedy that in advance of the 2016 election. The 2012 Obama campaign reported over a million volunteers and a highly organized field program. To help level the playing field in the 2016 elections, Republic Computer Science is launching Republic VX. It's a new software platform aimed at helping Republican campaigns effectively manage their volunteers, staff, and voter contact efforts. The new system is intended to manage staff and offices, provide a way to build a campaign organization structure, recruit volunteers, manage data access policy, and generate real-time field reports about volunteers and voter contact. It'll also manage volunteers who are a key campaign asset. A field check-in tool will track who is currently working at any field office and provide a way to communicate with volunteers, keep track of what volunteers are doing, and reward the most active volunteers with loyalty points. Another key feature is managing voter contacts with real-time reporting, and a system for managing script and canvassing efforts. Republic Computer Science is a technology startup based in Alexandria, Virginia. It was founded by Azarius Rita, who currently serves as the chief technology officer of the Republican National Committee. And this week in Spare Parts, only on the website, you'll find a story about a technology program scheduled for Moscow in October and how it sounds a lot like PC Expo in about 1997. Epson has released a whole lot of tiny printers. You'll see them in restaurant settings. Subway says you can now order and pay online. And wearable cameras are becoming very big business. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.